represent Jeremiah Grossman, Fishing with Superbait. Thank you all for coming. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Jeremiah Grossman, and uh, I'll be presenting on Fishing with Superbait. Excuse me one second. Okay, thank you. So, uh, before getting into the presentation, I'll tell you a little bit about myself and my background and what, uh, what we hope to present here. I am, uh, I am the founder and CTO of White Hat Security. I presented a lot of conferences, including Black Hat, Black Hat being my favorite. Um, this, I believe this is my 12th time actually speaking at Black Hat. Uh, Black Hat gives the speakers the, uh, an opportunity to present really the cutting edge information security information. Um, so I get the, that's really why I enjoy the conference. Um, I'm also the author of several white papers and presentations on different web application security topics. Uh, my night job, as I, as I call it, actually, let me switch sides. My night job, as I call it, I am also the founder of the Web Application Security Consortium, a group dedicated to bringing standards to the web application security world. And in a uh, in a past job, I was also an information security officer with Yahoo. And what Yahoo, the job at Yahoo is really what ultimately led to me founding the company with the challenges presented in that company. Um, before I get into a little bit about my company, what I do for a living, I wanted to explain the fundamentals of web application security to lay the foundation for the rest of the talk. Um, if you were to look at vulnerabilities in web applications as a stack, you would have the network layer, the web server layer, and the web application layer. What we're going to focus on today is the custom web applications, the web applications that will turn, uh, make a website dynamic, the custom software that you put on a web server that make web banks, uh, online auctions, social networking sites. And what my company does, where I, uh, where I spend the majority of my time is doing assessments on websites, what my company does is perform vulnerability assessments on websites on a continuous basis, taking automation and manual testing and providing a continuous service. So my job is to, every day, look at production websites and find their vulnerabilities. So here's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about current web security models, what, what security protections are out there. We're going to uh, define and describe phishing attacks, the common variety, cross-site scripting attacks, and also the hybrids between them. We'll also cover the next generation cross-site scripting attacks, what we can expect in the uh, in the coming year. And also uh, the best practices uh, for preventing these attacks. So the, the current web security models that we have, we're going to go through maybe uh, 20 or so slides of academics, and then we'll do live demonstrations of these attacks. Uh, the, first, uh, the first web security model that we're, most of us are familiar with is Secure Socket Layer. 
We'll also cover web browser security, what security the browser has in it by default. And we'll also cover two-factor authentication. We're going to cover what these, uh, what these security models provide, what they do, and, and the reason we're going to do that is because the, the, the attacks that we're going to show will circumvent the security protections offered by all of these. So first, SSL. SSL, uh, the acronym means Secure Sockets Layer. It is an encrypted tunnel. It built an encrypted tunnel between the client and the server. It's important to understand, contrary to what the market tells us when to use SSL, is that SSL does not secure a website. SSL only encrypts the data or protects the data between the client and the server, your web browser and the web company, in this case, eBay. If the web application on top of the web server, again, the web bank, the social networking site, the auction, if that web application is insecure, the use of SSL will be meaningless. So that was a very simple, and we'll move on to uh, to browser security or the same origin policy specifically. So the uh, I will read this uh, literally, literally. This is a definition from Mozilla. The same origin policy prevents documents or scripts loaded from one origin from going or setting properties of a document from a different origin. Now, what does this mean? This, uh, this, web, this is a, the source code to a web page. If we notice here, this is domain one. The web page is be, being inserted off domain1.com slash index.html. And this is the source code to the web page. These two lines here are iframes, which include content from other sites or other pages. The first iframe is loading content from domain one. The, the second uh, iframe is loading content from domain two. This section here, on, between the script tags, is JavaScript. What we're doing here is this line here, the x1 variable, it is trying to access content from the, uh, from the frame 1, from the domain 1. The, the, the same origin policy allows this since we're trying to access content on the same domain. The, the second JavaScript line is trying to access the second iframe on off-domain location. The browser understands this and will deny accessing off-domain data. The result will be an error message, uh, in this case from Firefox. The reason for this security protection uh, dates back to the early 90s. where website administrators, people developing websites, what they would do is frame a page and include content from other websites. So site.com would include content from a web bank. Then using JavaScript, try to access the content on another domain. That used to be allowed. The same origin policy now prevents this for security reasons. So again, we're, uh, we're going to try to circumvent this using uh, the cross-site scripting and phishing attacks.
next is two-factor authentication. And we're just now seeing the beginnings of this being used in an e-commerce setting. What these, uh, what these security measures are designed to do is increase the authentication on a system. So if a user were to lose their password or their password were to be compromised, you would need this hardware token to log in. If you didn't, if you don't have the token, if the hacker didn't have the token or the uh, the attacker or whatever you want to call them, they would not be able to exploit the user's account. The the problem is, and Bruce Snyder says it best with his uh, quote here, is that two-factor authentication isn't our savior. It won't defend against phishing attacks, and it's not going to prevent identity theft. And I'll get into more about why. So let's cover the basics of what a phishing scam is. We're going to define phishing, just so we have the groundwork. We're going to define cross-site scripting, and then we're going to combine it. Uh, phishing scams are really the high-tech version of the age-old confidence scam. The attack being the scammer wants to convince me there's somebody who they're not. So I'll give them my bank account information, my password, my social security number, and things like that. Phishing attacks have have targeted many, many companies in the U.S., and I suspect many, many, many more companies uh, internationally. So what is the common approach that we uh, that we see the most often? The most common approach is a uh, The most common approach is for a user to receive an email, a forged email claiming to be from a company. We'll open the, the message, and they'll tell us, for some reason, to verify account information, that we must click on their link and go to a website to verify our identity. When we go to the, when we click on this link, we go to a fake page. It, it will look identical to the page we are expecting, but it will not be on the right web server. It will be completely fake. Looking nearly or identically to the real website. What happens now is that the user, if they are uh, successfully conned, they'll fill out the form, and the information is sent uh, to the attacker. And at that point, they can do identity theft, they can hijack the accounts, and uh, other criminal activities. It's important to understand that email isn't the only avenue for an attacker to make contact with the victim. We have uh, also instant messaging, message boards, guest books, blog comments, uh, and also, of course, viruses, Trojan horses, and spyware. So what are the current trends that we're seeing in phishing? How big of a problem is this, and where is it going? So there is a group called the Anti-Phishing Working Group, and these are uh, statistics from earlier this year on the, uh, the trends in phishing, what they saw. They track all the uh, phishing emails and the phishing attacks as best they can. 
They reported 2,560 active fishing sites, a 28% growth rate, 64 brands have been attacked, and some other information such as the average time for an online site is 5.8 days and the longest time was for 31 days. The last thing I want to say about phishing is that when you click on a phishing link, you're actually taken to a lookalike page on a, on a different web server. It's not the actual web server. And that's going to be important as, well, as we move down and we combine phishing with cross-site scripting. So moving on to cross-site scripting, this is a, many of us have heard this term. The meaning is esoteric, and not a whole lot of people really understand its impact. The, fir the first thing we must understand is that this cross-site scripting is different from other web-based attacks. The attack targets the user of the website rather than the website itself, as most other attacks will. The, the programming language JavaScript is what really makes cross-site scripting uh, really bad. It's a very, very powerful programming language used to create websites. Cross-site scripting is the most commonly found web vulnerability occurring in well over 90% of the websites that we look at. Down here, these are uh, several resources that uh, you can use to go learn more about cross-site scripting uh, after, after the talk. Now, this is a, uh, a new slide I added since this event actually occurred uh, last week. This was the first time cross-site scripting was used uh, as a worm or a virus in this case. In this case, what happened was is that MySpace, MySpace being a social networking website, with many millions of users, what the attacker did was update their personal profile with JavaScript cross-site scripting code. When a when somebody viewed their profile, the JavaScript executed in their browser. What the cross-site scripting virus did was add them as a friend to the attacker. And then update their profile with his code so it would propagate. So therefore, anybody that looked at the profile of anybody else would then get infected or their profile would get infected. In the span of 24 hours, the, the hacker had amassed 900,000 uh, friends or victims in 24 hours. which caused MySpace to uh, downtime. They halted the system for 20 hours. It caused them 20 hours of downtime in this case. So what's important, uh, so as we can see, cross-site scripting is actually can be very, very dangerous. So let's, uh, let's dive a little bit deeper uh, technically into JavaScript because that's what makes cross-site scripting really possible. So 
in a typical web page is made up of HTML and JavaScript. JavaScript is used to add uh, interactivity to the web page. JavaScript has complete access to what we call the document object model. It has complete access to the entire web page, how it looks, and what it does. Complete control over the browser. So there are two types of cross-site scripting. The first one we'll call direct echo. It is the most common variety of cross-site scripting. It requires the user to click on a link to be exploited. When a user clicks, the JavaScript exploit code executes in the, uh, in the present domain. So if we look at this link here, this is what a cross-site scripting link might look like. In this case, victim.com. This is the CGI. And Q is the vulnerable parameter to cross-site scripting. In red, this is, this is where the, uh, the cross-site scripting code would go. When the user clicks on the page, the code in the, in the link echoes and becomes part of the page content, the resulting page content. As a simple example, this, this piece of JavaScript exploit code tries to steal the user's cookie. It does this by creating a new image object and making its source to an off-domain location, hacker.com, appending the document.cookie string to the, to the source. What happens is that the cookies are sent off-domain and show up in the web server logs on hacker.com. I'll show a demo, of, uh, a live demo of this a little later. So type 2 cross-site scripting, what we call HTML injection. This is by far uh, the most dangerous form of cross-site scripting because it does not uh, require the user to click. This HTML injection was uh, was the type that ha the hacker used. All the user, all the victim had to do was visit their profile page. They didn't have to click on a special link. So it's very similar. The the code will, can be found in HTML email, message boards, blog posts. So in this case, I uh, use Yahoo Mail as an example. If, if a HTML email was laced with some cross-site scripting code, once you read the email, you would be exploited. The resulting payload from the attack would be much similar to the first type of cross-site scripting, the direct echo. So, among, uh, among the examples uh, given, what else can we do with cross-site scripting? We can steal cookies. We can hijack this, uh, the user session. 
we can execute unintended website functionality. This would be updating your profile, deleting your accounts, uh, liquidating all your money from your web bank. We can also we can also alter any portion of the web page to make it look like something else. And the last one is we can. Uh, this uh, is very useful for aiding and phishing scams. So, cross-site scripting meshed with phishing is not purely academic. It has been used in the wild now. Not to the extent uh, as the very simple phishing attacks, but here are some examples. Google, eBay, uh, I believe this one was a, a banking website, SunTrust. So we're going to explore how these were done. So what were the variants? The reason cross-site scripting and phishing attacks become very powerful is that we're on the real website, not the fake website. The domain names will be identical. Which will give legitimacy to the attack. So the first type is cross-site scripting, redirect disguise, and the second one we're going to do, uh, we're going to show how a page can be rewritten. So uh, here is the, uh, actually I skipped this one. <laughs> So, as I said, this came from the, uh, the Fishing uh, Activity Trends Report in January of 2005. And these attacks uh, that we're going to be describing have been seen used. So, uh, the way this particular attack worked, the redirect disguise, is that the victim.com has a redirect CGI. And you can put any domain name in there you want. What happens when the user clicks the link, they will automatically be redirected to a legitimate or an illegitimate domain. But to the user, it will look real. So the link will have the right domain name. The problem is when uh, with this attack is that after you click when you're redirected, the domain name will be on uh, hacker.com or not the right domain name. So this isn't a completely perfect attack. It just uh, increases the likelihood that the user will click. So the page rewriting. This attack leverages, again, cross-site scripting. In an email message, the user will be asked to click on a link such as this. And here we have a PayPal web page example. When they click, When they click, the JavaScript code becomes part of the page. And we can change the look of the page. And again, the cookies can be sent off domain if that's what was our attack. So at this point, I'm going to drop out of the presentation, and I'm going to uh, do live demonstrations. Uh, one moment, please, while I set up. Okay. 
this web page here. This is a blog blog software. And we're running on victim dot uh, victim port seven thousand. My laptop is running three web servers. The second tab is the hacker running on port 8000, a different web server. Here is the, uh, the cross-site scripting exploit code that we'll be using. The third tab here is we're going to get into the advanced section. It is another web server running on port 9000. So to describe how, uh, how somebody might look for cross-site scripting, I'll give you an example. The most common place for cross-site scripting to be found is in the search fields. If we notice what we searched for was not found, the search term that we entered echoed as part of the web page. You'll also notice the search term up here in the location bar. We can also change the location bar and hit enter for testing purposes to see how it changes. The first test we're going to do is add HTML. In this case, the U tag, which means underline. As we can see, the HTML was used as part of the resulting web page and echoed as part of the page content. Again, notice that we're still on victim 7,000. Instead of the U tag, uh, before I move on, let's look at the source code to the web page. If we look near the bottom, we'll see the search term that we entered with the U tag as part of the web page source code. What we're going to do now is add JavaScript instead of uh, basic HTML to our cross-site script. What this will do when we hit enter is load a script tag as part of the page and it will alert with my cookie. So as you can see, the, uh, the JavaScript executed and uh, the, this dialog box shows my cookie. This is, this is harmless, but what it does show is proof of concept that this web application is vulnerable to cross-site scripting. Now, instead of putting our, our payload, our attack, in the URL bar, we will source it in. We will source it in from Hacker8000. We will be using the first example, uh, not this one, using defacement. So we will put another script tag, a source attribute, 
and we sourced in the web page. Now, the code here, and I'll show you the code. One second. This is the source code to the uh, to the defacement script that we sent in. What we what we have done is remove the original web page and added content to the web page, thereby defacing the website virtually. Now, as we can see, we could have made the page look like anything we wanted. And also, bear in mind again that we're still on victim.com. We could have, uh, and I'll, I'll get on to more examples, but the hack only exists if you have the right link. So if, we, if I were an attacker, I would email this link to a user and ask them to click on it to see it. Okay, let's move on to uh, the next example. What we're going to do now is a uh, is a cookie theft. Using this code. Okay, this, uh, this terminal window here is displaying uh, the web server logs for Hacker 8000. So if we were to reload this page at the bottom here, we'll see the, the entry that I just made. So we're going to go back to the, the vulnerable area. And we're going to put in the source to the cookie theft. Now, when we hit enter, it's going to execute. And if you notice that we didn't end up on the search page, we got redirected to the main page. But what happened in the background is that my cookies uh, got sent off domain to the hacker. That's part of the code. So as soon as the hacker, uh, as soon as the user clicked the link, the JavaScript would access their cookie and pass it off domain. Very, very simple. So let's do one more demonstration. We're going to show a, a more common phishing attack using cross-site scripting. This code. So we'll load in the phishing scam. Oops. Cross-site scripting code. We're just going to hit enter to make sure this works. Now, if you notice, again, just like the defacement, we completely rewrote the web page and added a username field and a password field. To the user, we're still on the right domain, victim.com or bank.com. We're on the correct domain. We're not on a look-alike phishing website. We're on the real website. What we're going to do is put in a username. And we're going to type in as a password of my password. <laughs> <laughs> 
and hit submit. It didn't come up, excuse me, uh, it erred. <laughs> Let's try it again. Username, password. Now it doesn't want to work. <laughs> One more try. <laughs> what this should do when I hit submit is grab the username and password and just like the cookie theft, pass the credentials off domain. Guess not. Sorry that didn't work, but it would it would act just like the phishing attack, grabbing the username and password and pass it off domain. But we can move on. So those are the basics of cross-site scripting and phishing. So let's go back to the presentation and we'll cover some of the more advanced attacks. Now, let me let me stop let me stop here. And before we go into the really advanced cross-site scripting, what have we learned? If the website had SSL on it, with these attacks, the SSL lock symbol would have shown up just fine. SSL would provide no protection against this attack. The two-factor authentication would would not have provided any help. Because, again, we're on the real website, not a fake website. Even the same origin policy wouldn't help, because as we saw we were with the cookie theft, we were able to pass information from the victim.com to hacker.com. We can pass information across the domain, so that was not any protection either. So what are the next the next generation cross-site scripting attacks? We've seen simple cookie theft, simple uh, password hijack that we didn't have it working. We've seen defacement. What we're going to move into is more virus-like cross-site scripting, Trojan horses, worms, using JavaScript as a programming language. The, a lot of this work is based on com, uh, uh, based on work done by Anton Ranger from Excess, uh, from using the cross-site scripting proxy. All the code I'll be using here is 100% uh, mine, but he, uh, but Anton has some very good ideas that he's presented. So with cross-site scripting, what are the limitations of the attacker? We need to understand the limitations to take the cross-site scripting attacks one step farther. The first limitation is that the victim-attacker connection is not persistent. What that means is when I when the user clicks after they've been cross-site scripted, the attacker has lost has lost control. And the off-domain data transfer mechanism, in our example, cookie theft, was only one way. From the victim to the attacker. We want to do bi-directional communication. So what we want is persistent remote control over the browser, so consistent control as long as the browser is open. Complete control over the browser, so we can make it do whatever we want. We want to monitor several cross-site scripted clients simultaneously. Be as invisible as possible, and circumvent all the previously described security models that I mentioned. So, 
I'm going to uh, describe as best I can how how the cross-site scripting remote controller, and I'll demonstrate it, how, uh, how it works. When the user is cross-site scripted, and that exploit code is running in the page, the code creates a full page iframe, taking up the whole page. Showing the user what they expect to be seen on that page. What happens is when the user clicks, the JavaScript code executes, reads all the content, and passes that data off domain. So here's a, a sample of the code uh, that, that actually does this. So the reason it's persistent is as the user clicks, they are still in the iframe. The, the, the JavaScript exploit code is still controlling them. As they click, they are still on the right page. This is some of the source code here that is able to take all the HTML on the page, and since there's a lot of HTML, it has to be encoded. So embedded in the exploit, there's a base64 encoder written in JavaScript. It will base64 all the content, chop up the data, and pass it in blocks off domain. And here's how it does that. Very similar to the examples we gave earlier. And when, when we see the example, this is how it will look on the web server side. Big blocks of base64 encoded HTML. The way we get bidirectional communication is that the JavaScript code creates script objects, script tags, that are used to constantly pull the attacker's web server, hacker.js. It's constantly asking for JavaScript commands. So uh, again, I'm going to drop out of the presentation, and I'm going to do the demonstration. Hopefully, this one will work. Okay, we're going to use the, actually, uh, Terminal Window 2, We I wrote a web server in Perl that will act as the controlling web server. In this screen, we'll see the transfer of all the base64 data. In the third tab here, this is how we monitor the users that we have tracked using the Trojan. So we use the Trojan code here. As you can see, it's uh, lots and lots of source code to, to do what we need to do. What I'm doing now is I'm going to bring up the JavaScript, uh, the, the console, so I can see if there's any errors. So hopefully if there's any problems, I'll be able to see it. So now we're going to change the phishing scam uh, name to Trojan and hit enter. Now, 
what you're seeing here, notice that we're still on victim, uh, victim 7000. In the, and you'll notice there's a red outline. This too is to let, uh, to visually see the full screen iframe. So we're, we are working with layers. The original page back here in the back that has been deleted and the full screen iframe that we want the user to see. This is the administration interface to the blog software. In the background, and I'll scroll up, when the page loaded, this is the base 64 data that got sent off domain. The green web page, this is the HTML. So now let's see it in the monitor. Now as we notice, we're running on session 533. To show you that it's multi-session, I'll reload the page. We'll go back to the monitor, and we'll hit reload. So we're listening to another session. We can click on this session, and we can see what the user is seeing. When they click, that HTML is sent off domain, and this is the HTML from the website. It looks different because we have no uh, cascading style sheets styled to the page. But this is the web page the user is seeing. For instance, if we clicked on the web blog, Notice we're still on Victim 7000, still in the iframe. We'll go to Templates. Now let's reload the controller page. Notice that we that we see the new the uh, the updated HTML from what the user has seen. So as they click, as long as they're in our control, we can completely monitor their activity using all JavaScript. So that's how we can, uh, now we've uh, proven persistent control over the user and uh, the ability to send large amounts of data off domain. Now if you, if you notice these requests here, this is the JavaScript pulling the controller looking for code. Like I said, we're in port 8080, uh, session 8080, excuse me. We're going to modify the session. So in this window, we're going to open up. This is the file that the, that the Trojan horse is uh, requesting, JavaScript file 8080. Now, we're going to put some JavaScript in here, and it will execute in the browser environment on the left. We're going to start simple and do it in alert. Hello, Jeff Moss. Hello. <laughs> oh. Sorry, Jeff. <laughs> so we save it. And immediately we get ex execute code on the in the browser environment. So now we have persistent bidirectional. Now this is very very simple, but like I said, we want to make it invisible. So I have some uh, code up here that I previously written. We'll paste it in.
or bring up the the uh, the, the hacked user and hit save. Notice that the red disappears. Now it's completely invisible to the user. It'd be very, very difficult for them to, them to actually see it. Now, let's. Uh, what else can we do? We can redirect them, for instance. We can redirect them. We're going to redirect them to the main uh, to the main blog page, the public page. So now we can control where they are at any moment in time. And we can also update the HTML. So in this example, this code, uh, this code here is going to update any instance of XSS and replace it with XSS++. So notice right here, XSS. We'll hit save. We'll hit save. And we've automatically updated the content. So at this point, we have, just like a Trojan horse, full control over the browser to do anything we want and, cons and persistently monitor the user. We can make them add new entries to their blog to cross-site script further users. We can delete their accounts, change their passwords, steal their passwords. Anything we really want. So we're going to uh, finish up uh, the presentation uh, summarizing what, what, we, what we've accomplished, and then we'll get into the protection mechanisms. Okay, so what, uh, what have, we, what have we, we been able to do? All the previously described security models have been circumvented. SSL, two-factor auth, uh, same origin policy. And the reason this is possible is because the phishing site is now on the real website, not the fake website. That means taking down the, the phishing website won't work because it's the real website. We can also, uh, if we really wanted to, we could force the user to hack other websites, hack banks, download illegal content such as, you know, pornography. Um, we can do anything we want. So what what do uh, what can enterprises do to protect uh, protect their companies? What can developers do to help? The first and best thing is sanitizing data. As we saw, the URLs required JavaScript going into the parameters. Those parameter fields have to be cleaned up. The best way to think about it is to only allow characters or data that you expect to receive. That's the best way. So if you're expecting a phone number or a four-digit number, make sure the string only contains numbers and four-digit numbers. If you must uh, allow special characters, these are the special characters you have to uh, deal with in a very particular fashion. Developers should encode these characters into their equivalent HTML entities. What this does is it renders the incoming HTML harmless. It won't execute in the browser. So that's the best way. Uh, depending on your programming language of choice, I put in the slides uh, two code examples. 
one in Perl, one in PHP. The Perl one is a, uh, a uh, regular expression. And uh, these can be used uh, quite safely in a production environment. If you run uh, C Sharp Java using these same examples, and uh, in any language will work. So as we try to teach in information security, we need several layers of security. The reason we do that is so if any one layer of security fails, there's another one and perhaps one beyond that that will uh, protect as well. So the previous slide talked about uh, examples of what you could do in the source code. What we'll do now is talk about enhancements to the uh, web server security. In Apache, there's something called mod security. It is an Apache module that can see incoming data. Apache security is highly recommended. It does a lot more than block cross-site scripting. This simple rule here will block incoming less than and greater than signs from entering into the web server. So even if the code allowed it, mod security won't. The new Microsoft uh, .NET, I believe it's uh, 1.1 if I remember correctly, they have default configurations that prevent those special characters. The older versions, you can add a IIS lockdown, URL scan, or secure IIS to get the same effect. Another solution, and this is uh, specifically targeted uh, to the uh, to the Trojan horse exploit that I uh, that I showed you. This putting this uh, JavaScript code at the top of your page, what this does is it prevents your page from being contained in an iframe or any frame. When the user loads the page, this script will execute and explode out of the containing frame. So not only is it effective to prevent the, uh, the cross-site scripting Trojan, but it also prevents other people from wrapping your page in frames for banner advertisements and things like that. It doesn't harm anything, and it's good to place in your templates as just an added security feature. Um, that's really all I uh, all I have uh, for the talk today. I can uh, answer questions after the talk, or I'll be outside also answer questions. Um, thank you very much for coming. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Black Hat, for having me. Jeff. Can, can you just talk briefly about the various browsers and how does any of this make a difference depending upon which browser you're using? The text that I showed can be made, I wrote them for Firefox because I use a Mac. <laughs> They can, they can and uh, are completely uh, cross-browser if you code them that way. The thing is, and here's where it gets really important, is that we, we've been saying cross-site scripting is a server-side vulnerability, and to, to much an extent it is. However, it's exploiting the user, me. And I don't want to be put in a position where I have to rely on the security of the ser on the servers to protect me. So obviously, there has to be a client-side solution. Also, to date, I haven't seen any of the browser vendors put a lot of effort into preventing or to be helping cross-site scripting on the client side at all. Um, it's one thing. Uh, 
Microsoft IS has done a little bit with the HTTP only flag to prevent JavaScript from accessing cookies, but as as we saw, we could do a lot more than access cookies. So I would hope that the browser vendors would do more. There is not. Any other questions? All right. Thank you all uh, for coming. I appreciate it being here. Thank <laughs> you.